This is a Billionaires in Boxes production. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes with me, your host, Phil Paluccia, the Digital Business Connector, here with you as always. Uh, I'm joined by a very special guest today, Ralph Kaiser. Um, Ralph, I've been looking forward to bringing you on this show, buddy. This is going to be a, a fascinating conversation, I'm sure. I'm really excited to be here, Phil, right from our first little messages back and forth on LinkedIn of all places, but love what you're doing with uh, the podcast and uh, it's it's fun to be here and it's a real honor. Thank you for having me. No, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here and you know, we're going to get on to uh, some really interesting topics today around the... The cannabis industry, the hemp market, the the you know we were having a chat in what I like to call the virtual green room beforehand, where we were <laughs> you know kind of almost discussing which states have got it right and and what's happening with the black market and and, and all that kind of beautiful stuff. So before we di- deep dive into all of that, for our listeners who haven't come across you before, uh, how would Ralph describe Ralph? Well, it's Ralph Kaiser. I'm the uh, CEO of Integrated Compliance Solutions out of the U.S., and we are one of the leading cannabis banking compliance and payment processing firms uh, since 2014. So 2014 doesn't seem like a long time ago, Phil, but in the world of cannabis, it is, uh, particularly around the compliance side of it. But we've been used by more marijuana-related businesses or cannabis-related businesses and more financial institutions to help with uh, compliance in compliant banking and compliant payment processing than really any of our peers uh, on the street. And we have an extensive team across the U.S. that uh, assists financial institutions uh, with that compliance. And it's really uh, very, it's a very exciting time to be in this, in this industry, ever-changing, ever-growing. Uh, one day is certainly not like the next. <laughs> Well, very true. I was going to say it's almost. It may only been 2014, but it feels like decades in this industry. I'm sure it it does, uh, and and it's it's as I say, it's ever expanding. Um, Canada's a unique market. The Europe, you know, UK is a very unique market. We did a great podcast on the New Zealand side of it uh, last week. That's a unique market. But even when you get into the US, one state is completely different from the next state. Oregon is different from California, which is completely different from Florida, which is, again, completely different from Oklahoma. Mm. And the rules, the regulations, they're different. CBD, marijuana, hemp, industrial hemp, they're all different. That's why I have a job. Well, and I can understand that fully. I mean, I was reading, um, I was reading a blog recently. Somebody was comparing California to Texas in terms of the cannabis market, and I may as well have been reading an article about two different continents, let alone two different states within the same country. They are, they are, and that's that's what we're challenged with in in so many ways with the federal oversight. Still, Schedule One substance in the U.S. marijuana is. And then being legal at the state level. So that certainly makes challenges for financial institutions, but so many other operations. And then the Farm Bill 2018 legalizing hemp, but CBD, which is a derivative of, of course, hemp, being illegal in some of the, you know, in some of the other states. And we've just had, you know, we're literally still waiting for uh, decisions on the election in the U.S., and all of us are getting up to date on what some of the, the changes now are. Uh, and that includes myself getting up to date on what the changes are on a, on a legal basis. Look, this might be a difficult question to answer. And uh, if, it, if it is, then forgive Good. my like ignorance. Those. But what, <laughs> what, how does this work sort of state by state? Like if you, if you purchase uh, marijuana or cannabis-based products in a state where this is legal – and then take it with you to a state that it's sort of not as is that, is that a big no no? Is it the transaction or is it the the possession? I mean, what, uh, what's it, it? Well, yeah, you don't want to go across state lines. Okay, uh, that's that's for sure. And uh, uh, you you want to be cognizant of the jurisdiction that you're in. Uh, you want to be particularly if you're an operator. That can even be on a 
uh, at a municipal level. Certain municipalities have different uh, laws and different regulations. And then obviously the states, various states, have different rules and regulations, medicinal versus uh, uh, fully recreational, and yeah, of course, some states not at all. So, if you're looking to consume from a uh, consume it where you've bought it, put it yes. that way, and be on the side that way. It's kind of similar to Europe in that respect. Then, when it comes to Amsterdam and the Netherlands, I mean, obviously, they, right. you you can you can enjoy it within that setting. Um, but once you start to try and think about taking it across the border into a different country, you could find yourself in, in extreme hot water. You know, absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> and and uh, we've actually, we, you know, we see that too. Uh, uh, people attempting to transport uh, in into other jurisdictions, other states, and as I say, just be just be mindful of it. And it, it is a little bit about doing your your appropriate homework, knowing what you can consume uh where uh and that includes even cbd which uh in some states it's currently illegal the fda in the u.s looking to put together a framework and guidelines still uh, as is the usda so it's an ever flexing market it's an it's very dynamic and that's one of the things that makes it uh, unique and exciting. And certainly for us on the integrated compliance solution side, just helping the financial institutions navigate those regulatory changes that um, they have to meet and, and be cognizant of in order to bank any of the cannabis-related businesses. Well, one of the things that, that came up in, in my research, and, and it led me to a quite an interesting question that I, I was yet to find the answer to. Um, I was reading that the sale of alcohol is seriously reduced in the states that have um, recreational cannabis laws. Uh, sorry, rec recreational cannabis allowance. It's like you, it, it's accepted in those states. Now, that led me to kind of question the states that are less tolerant, the states that have yet to embrace this. Is that more of a political persuasion or is that more of an industry derivative thing where you know the the sale of alcohol and the tax that comes from that is actually causing people to say no or is it is it still the stigma of marijuana i believe and my experience and our experience at the firm is it's the stigma of marijuana this goes right back to the mexican revolution this goes right back to william randall hurst and uh, the whole idea of hemp, losing timber, um, the Mexicans coming across the border, and marijuana having a bad name. Even at that point, many people had cannabis in their medicine cabinets, Phil. But it was called marijuana just because of the linkage to the, the, the Mexican immigrants and uh, a, a lot of bigotry, if you'd like, uh, attached to that. And then that, the Marijuana Tax Act, I believe that was 1937, Controlled Substances Act in 1970, and all of that, just this negative stigma toward marijuana. And that really also threw back the entire hemp industry, uh, even the industrial hemp industry. The industrial hemp, has, industrial hemp has just massive applications, everything from automotive to hempcrete as a, as a replacement to, uh, of concrete. So there's lots of different applications for the plant. And I was actually talking not too long ago to an industrial hemp manufacturer uh, locally here and what an operation they have and th he defined it as like the second fastest growing plant in the world uh, it is amazing how they uh, how fast their 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 crop was growing and the applications to it i sat in an office that had a car panel an interior car panel leaning up against the wall and that was made of hemp they had iPhone, um, smartphone cases sitting on the boardroom table made of hemp and a mixture of plastic. And yeah, and, and some of even the statistics around this, some of the research statistics that 
there's really only a requirement for 50 to 100,000 acres of hemp needed in order to satisfy the CBD market. But some of the research analysts have been saying, oh, there's going to be a requirement for millions and millions of acres on the industrial hemp side of in order to satisfy that need. Well, it's very, it's very um, eco-friendly uh, construction product, isn't it? It's, uh, it it has a lot of benefits there, and actually, it could uh, it could, could significantly reduce the the CO two emissions of a building project, yes. as, as well as all yeah. the kind of the additional benefit. Yeah. So, look, as a surveyor, I really get off on that kind of stuff. I love uh, sustainable and renewable development. So, any kind of material that. Uh, is both organic in abundance and has incredible properties for the for the construction of the of the building. Yeah, I will always get excited about. And and you make a great point because it's not only the carbon capture of the product itself, but it's the fact that the uh, generation of the product, like concrete cement, there is a capture emission uh, aspect uh, to that, uh, whereas here there is an, an actual carbon capture aspect, uh, certainly, to, to the product. And I, I, I honestly believe, and, and we believe um, at the firm, that there's going to be just continued growth on the industrial uh, hemp uh, side of it, as there will be on the CBD side of it, as there will be on the THC side of it, because those that are on more on the therapeutic uh, side of it, just that CBD coupled with a little bit of THC, that entourage effect, as it's known, is just so, so powerful. And e even my mom, who um, suffers from osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, she has had... Uh, just great success with a mixture of CBD and THC and, and actually coming off of the opioid painkillers. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, and uh, just the reduction in inflammation. Um, but it is the combination of the two together that work so much better than just one off um, uh, or one individually. Uh, so there's certainly we're, we're going to continue to see that growth uh, in the industry. Well, look, I want to get onto regulations and things, but the, the, something you've just said about your mom then kind of, it does make me want to ask a question around pharma, around the pharmaceutical industry, because I guess I, I look at, and we've had this conversation before, so I'm kind of a, I'm a socialist capitalist. <laughs> like I, I like to make money. There's nothing wrong with making money, but I like to do so in a way that's not going to screw over the rest of the planet in the process. Um, and you know, I, I can't help as an outsider to this industry in some degree, kind of looking at the the growth that is there around the cannabis and the hemp market and kind of getting really excited by that. But then the two things that would nest, that would put me off, I think, uh, if I was to say start a business just focused on this industry, these are the two areas that would put me off. Number one, when it comes to medicinal cannabis, I'd be concerned about how much the pharma industry are going to get involved. They're much bigger. They've got a lot more money, and they make a lot of money from the products and, and, and medication that they sell. They do. Are, are they going to want to embrace cannabis, or are they going to almost going to want to you buy out that market and then you regulate it so that people continue to buy your drugs? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it's a great question. Uh, when 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 you were talking about pharma, it, it prompted actually um, a, a an anecdote, a story that I have that is about seven years old now. And uh, I was talking to a gentleman in Canada. He uh, expressed to me, Phil, he's been forty three years in the cannabis business, mm -hmm. so he wasn't licensed, uh, but he. Yep. He had some great stories about helping people, and he grew the the plant, and he did get in trouble with the law numerous times. Um, but he gave a lot of his his uh, marijuana away, and he talked about one family, one mother, who came to him because their child had epileptic seizures. Yes, and they uh, tried different things and dialed in various uh, uh, types of, um, of of cannabis for this child. And they were able to significantly help the seizure rate that this child was having. So the mom was happy. Obviously, the child was happy. But he came up, he told me one aspect that, that really sat with me and, and stayed with me, which is it was the mom that was happy. It was obviously the epileptic child wa that was happy. But he was told by one of the siblings of the epileptic child, 
that it was the first since taking the cannabis, it was the first time that the sibling could have a sleepover, could have oh, friends wow. over. So when you start to think about that effect, you know, that it, it, it's not just on the mom. The mom obviously wants obvious, all moms want what's best for their children. It's not only the epileptic child who wanted not to have the seizures, but think about that for the first time, the sibling could have the, the, the brother could have a sleepover with friends. Mm. So then, then you start to get into these anecdotes too of of soldiers of first responders having the 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 help on PTSD. Yes, and again, this is all anecdotal. So big pharma, uh, are they going to come into this market? They certainly are coming into it, not in in a big way, uh, not as expressly as uh, particularly some of the other drug production that they do, but certainly they're looking at it and they're looking at some of the other uh, up and coming um, therapeutics like a psilocybin or the psychedelics, which are garnering a lot of attention yes. in the world of PTSD and depression and therapeutic uh, use. So, yeah, you're right, Phil. Um, big Pharma is going to be circling. And the one thing I do love about the cannabis industry, and that relates back to the story of this gentleman who's been in the business for 43 years, but there is, I, I, I really have seen and experienced a helpfulness within the industry. It is a help to improve the health of, of others and not necessarily, oh, and obviously in any type of uh, fast growing sector, we saw it in the dot-com world, there are those who want to make a lot of money. And that has to be looked at always in any new sector from an investment perspective. And I'm more of an investor than I, and an investment person than I am a banker or payment processor. So I've seen that over my 30-year history in the business. But, oh, yeah, Phil, Big Pharma, they're watching. They'll be a part of it. And uh, they'll get their their due share of it as well. Well, that's why I, I question whether they're going to be at odds with that. I mean, if you look at how a lot of the pharma industry is set up, you know, they have drug reps whose job it is to specifically go and sell to yeah. GMs and medics and whatever the, the, the particular brand of drug that they want to push. And invariably, it's usually the one with the best profit margin. <laughs> um, so if you know, if you they're there to make money. Like I appreciate they're there to help people, but it's like if we can help people and sell you the most expensive f type of medication, then we've done a good job because we're going to make money and you're going to get better. You know, and and as you just said, I, I've also found a lot of people across the cannabis industry to be to be very very helpful, almost more so than a lot of other industries. And and I I don't quite see how that goes hand in hand with pharma. I have to be honest. Yeah, and well, and I think it's part of the progression of the industry as a whole because for so many years this was illicit, this was illegal in in so many different jurisdictions as it is in still in some, and but so much uh, of the plant was still being grown and utilized accordingly. And uh, then it all of a sudden started to become into the legal world and the legal framework and a regulatory framework and a licensing framework uh, was, was put into place. Obviously, uh, government jurisdictions looking at the tax benefits, uh, certainly from that. So that has now progressed from more of the medicinal side of it. The next progression, obviously, is recreational uh, aspect of it, as you had said about the, you know, in, in the alcohol use versus and that coming down in, in some of the more uh, legal jurisdictions. So I think we're on a continuum here, and that continuum will certainly lead to more research. Uh, we're seeing much more research at the university level, at the academic level on uh, the, the cannabis plant. Many more compounds being discovered uh, that, the, that the plant generates, and we're probably only at the tip of the iceberg on that. So I think, you know, as, as you say, there's, there's this, this big pharma watching. I think that's going to be a natural progression as to how they get into it. Whether that is at the individual plant level, many more are looking at synthetic, uh, THC and th synthetics overall. Uh, but uh, I really do believe that the, the greater focus on this and the greater uh, determination of its application will be of benefit to to all of us uh, and certainly on a on a, thera um, on a therapeutic basis uh, as well as 
bringing it out of the illicit uh, market where they're that you know, an illicit market creates problems it creates problems for crime for law yes. enforcement for financial institutions so uh, anything that can be done to to help legitimize that but make it also available on a, on a cost effective basis for uh, for the public that's that'll be a good thing but I think that's that's the that segues very nicely into the second area that I would have not concerns as such but i would i would be very wary is the fact that it is so different state by state you know in in one state taking a particular action is completely legal and fine and in another it you could end up in prison for taking that action yeah and and you know and then you have the fact that even once it is uh legalized in some capacity or another whether that's medicinal or, or recreational state by state then impose their own laws in terms of how how relaxed they're going to be with that what is and what isn't okay i mean surely even from from your perspective within within the bank it must be a forever moving goalpost no oh phil you hit the nail on the head i'll give you an example there's a, a multi-state operator i know of uh, multi-state operator is a cannabis a legitimate cannabis entity that operates across multiple states hence the name multi-state operator mm-hmm this one multi-state operator had to work with 20 different financial institutions, banks and credit unions, because and they were looking to consolidate because you can imagine being a chief financial officer at any company that has to deal with 20 different banks or credit unions. Yeah. And the banks and credit unions were all great. It's not a complaint to any individual one of them. It's just a matter of having to keep track of 20 different bank accounts and Checking account, you know, all the operational aspects that are associated with that is a nightmare. And the, the reason they had to have that was because they did operate in different jurisdictions. So all of that makes it just all the more challenging for these uh, cannabis entities um, because it is a mishmash. It is a, a cookie-cutter approach on the, on the regulations. Mm. I'm going to ask you a slightly controversial question here, and you're going to have to pick your favorite state, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, with, obviously, with the news, that uh, the projections coming out at the moment, depends when you're listening to this, but the projections coming out at the moment are that Arizona, New Jersey, and South Dakota are all likely to vote to yeah. legalize uh, recreational marijuana. Um, which state do you feel has it right? Does anybody have it right yet? Well, uh, it may not be ones that just legalized. Uh, every uh, there, there's a lot of focus on on New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, and and what that means for the the domino effect for other the surrounding states. areas. Yeah, yeah. So um, that is um, going to probably create a bit of a domino effect. The wave, the East Coast wave, as it's called, for neighboring um, New York, certainly uh, Pennsylvania. And there's even a, a stronger tie into some of the uh, the, the great legislators and, and politicians who've taken the lead on that in in those neighboring states. So that's going to be one to definitely watch, Phil. Uh, Missouri, <clears throat> Missouri is uh, medicinal uh, as it sits right now, and they've done some good things. Uh, there's been some really good work uh, done by the. Uh, MOCAN, the trade association there, the financial institutions that are operating there have been doing just an amazing job. They're now getting to the operational uh, level as well. Uh, More and more of the dispensaries, ultimately, of course, you start with cultivation. That then leads to uh, the 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 production and then obviously the the distribution through um, through the the, the uh, dispensaries, but if if I were to pick one state uh, and and it's not necessarily picking a favorite, it's just uh, if and and this is what I always recommend to other jurisdictions around the world is to always look for those little success clues. Um, I always said to to my three boys when they were growing up, it's okay to learn from your mistakes, better yet, learn from others. Yes. And there are some states that have done it really well, but there's no state that's got it perfect because it is such a dynamic uh, aspect. And But Missouri is one that I would have to choose that if I were to have somebody come knock on my door and say, who's left some good little good um, fingerprints or footprints of success, I'd say, Go take a look at Missouri. That's one that's done it right. 
I like that. I like that a lot. I had also noticed as well that over the last year or so, um, a number of cannabis-focused uh, education programs have actually come to fruition as well. So I know uh, <clears throat> University of San Diego is doing a very good one. There's some st- uh, state school in northern Ohio, um, and there's the Cleveland School of Cannabis, which I thought was yeah. quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, at ICS here, we have a, a great partnership with uh, Green Flower Media. In Greenflower Media, they're the world-renowned uh, cannabis operating training platform. Uh, Max Simon is the CEO there. Gil Christie uh, does a lot of the enterprise work. And that's a team that have the training for the cannabis operators buttoned down really well. And they have now partnerships with, I think it's six or seven of these uh, higher educational institutions. And... That is so great to see because uh, I'm a firm believer whether it's uh, somebody that, uh, as my mom, you know, um, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, or that mother that had the epileptic child, mm-hmm. the first thing they had to do was educate themselves. Of course. And uh, there are great resources there, but even to the next level, if you're going to get into this business in any way, shape, or form as an operator, there has to be that um, uh, that training, and and it's really good to see the universities and colleges stepping up and noticing this is a, a an industry that is really growing and legitimizing itself, and there has to be the education behind it. There's also, there also needs to be consumer education, which I think yeah. is, is really important because I, it, there aren't many industries out there anymore that we don't at least know on some part how to handle it. But, you know, uh, just a, a really small but silly example, you know, if you were talking about recreational marijuana, for example, if you were to smoke it, that hits your system faster. But if you eat it in edibles, that takes a while. So what you could do is you can very easily make the mistake a lot of people make with alcohol, which is it's not working, I'm going to have more. And by the time you start to feel the effect, it's already too late because you've got the next round of edibles or to use the alcohol thing, you've got those last few shots still <laughs> let to hit your system. Um, yeah. and, and that's the thing that can push you push you over the edge so because it's been such a taboo subject you know we were taught you know we didn't always listen but we were taught by our parents when you go out and drink alcohol you know drink a beer and then drink some water and then drink something take your time pace it and don't don't mix your spirits you know don't go from uh from grain to to spirits and and back to the ale like that's not a good idea but there hasn't really been that level of education around uh cannabis consumption it was almost just tarred in with the don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. There's there's been certainly uh, some issues around people's use uh, as it relates to edibles, um, because it's very easy to just keep eating and eating before the the uh, uh, the effect takes hold. So that's something to to certainly be mindful of. But uh, you make a great point, which is uh, regardless of what 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 you buy or consume. Uh, there's always that educational, that learning curve. And uh, whether that's going to buy a new refrigerator, new TV, or uh, certainly something that you ingest, there has to be that uh, educational process. And that is something definitely recommend as it as it relates to cannabis. And that would be, whether it be THC, CBD, yeah. um, regardless, there has to be certainly that. What I was going to say from a medicinal perspective, it's often the micro dosing that actually does the, the, the most good, isn't it? Kind of taking small amounts throughout the day rather than in kind of one, one lump sum, no, no matter how you consume that. Yeah. And that gets really back to <clears throat> uh, the, the pharmaceuticals in the pharma world too, because many uh, people uh, today that are uh, looking at uh, cannabis to to help with some ailment, they almost have to dial that in themselves or look at the anecdotal evidence or assistance that others have had on a success basis. But it's not a, a case so much anymore where you can go similarly with other pharmaceuticals. You just go get a prescription and it's 100 milligrams or 500 milligrams for 10 days. Uh, no, there's there's a little bit more homework, first of all, and then a little bit more dialing in as to what's going to necessarily work for 
the um, for the individual, and that's part and parcel of it being a an old, old, long term plant, mm. but new to legitimizing itself in the industry. Makes a lot of sense. Isn't it ironic that actually a lot of uh, a lot of the historic consumers, let's call them, of, of cannabis, will actually know more about this than the than the legislators and the regulators for, for probably quite some time at this oh, point. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> that's why some of the, the entities that, even the public entities, the ones that have raised a lot of capital uh, and uh, built out huge cultivation facilities, they've tapped into that expertise. They've brought on those that have been uh, uh, master growers, if you'd like, or uh, building building out even the um, uh, the facility to, to to grow the plant effectively. So yes. they are tapping uh, into into that. Uh, but you bring up a great point on the microdosing aspect of it too, which is that's that whole dialing in. As I say, uh, people have to have uh, some patience of being able to to dial it in to see what works for them. Mm, absolutely. Look, going back to the business aspect of it, because obviously there's one of the things that excites me the most about the, the emergence of the cannabis industry is how many opportunities it's going to create, because there's almost like an entire ecosystem of businesses that will be needed to to sort of supply this. But, you know, I, I can't I find myself sort of possibly going too deep and going down a bit of a rabbit hole. But I think to myself, like think about the logistics and haulage companies. OK, so transporting yeah. this stuff. You know, okay, so they can't take it across state lines. But what happens if you have a logistics company who are operating, let's say Colorado, they're perfectly fine to operate there. But as a logistics company, they are registered in, let's say, New York State. That's where their head office is, okay? What happens with them when it comes to this work? Are they going to have problems getting paid by these organizations? Because in, in New York State, that's not okay? I mean, how does how does that yeah. work? Well, and 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 this is the, yeah, this is the challenge that um, that wh- whether it's related to setting up the entity, whether it's related to raising capital, and bringing the investment dollars in, uh, or taking for granted what so many other businesses have ease have great ease at obtaining, which is tr- traditional banking. So, absolutely, you're, you're right. They. Any of these legitimate cannabis entities have to look at how they structure themselves uh, to meet the uh, jurisdictional requirements of where they're they are going to to operate. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's even been a, a case of uh, Canada versus the U.S. Not so much versus the U.S., but Canada has been, for example, a great place for cannabis entities to list publicly and, and raise capital. Then it's a matter of once you've got that capital, how do you get it back into the U.S.? Yeah, so, you true. know, it, that that's a great other parallel of, as, as you mentioned, a logistics company operating in um, Colorado, but having a head office uh, somewhere else. And that's where you literally have to go jurisdiction by jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Mm. I, hope, I hope that that, that kind of comes to an end because actually I can see a, a much wider benefit for everybody, not just in terms of the industry, but due to the, the, what it can do for the economy um, if we get this right. But I think whilst it remains too complicated and you've almost kind of – every business is having to – as you said with that, the, the example you gave earlier, you know, they had to speak to 20 different types of banks and find, to try and make this work. Now, that, that's not feasible. Like It's, it's possible, but it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow down the growth of the industry. And as a result, it's going to limit the good that it can do for the economy, surely. Absolutely. And in some of the jurisdictions in the U.S., banking is very limited for the, the cannabis entities. So uh, many of the dispensaries still work on an all-cash basis. So if you're running an all-cash business, retail analytics show that it costs between five, six, maybe even as high as seven percent of revenue to run an all-cash business. Mm. So that really can affect uh, the the financial results and the performance of uh, any entity that works on an all-cash basis. That's the monetary or the quantitative side of it. Of course, 
There is also the qualitative side of it and the safety issue, having lots of cash and needing to transport it, needing to bring it to a vaulting facility or get it into a financial institution. Uh, that comes with a, a safety issue, but it also comes with a high cost because that's typically uh, to be done by an armor courier. And uh, that's not a cheap endeavor. But it also uh, comes with a lot of risk, not just to be to be obviously held up and robbed for that cash and, and, and the expense that comes with that, but actually getting it into a financial institute. A lot of cash-only businesses will struggle with anti-money laundering because things will start to look suspicious or you know, it, it, it's, it's far more likely to trigger a couple of red flags and end up getting frozen while somebody looks into it. No, that's exactly it. And uh, that has been one of the challenges in some of the jurisdictions in the U.S. It's not only a matter of getting banking and, again, something that a lot of traditional um, uh, businesses will take for granted, but it's also having stable and robust banking, which means that the cannabis entity can be reliant on the banking that they have. And uh, it, some some entities have tough time getting banking. Those that do are underbanked. They're not necessarily getting the bank services or as robust services uh, and advantages that traditional businesses uh, have. And that does, you're absolutely right, that curbs their growth mm -hmm. because it is hard to pay taxes. It is hard to do payroll. It's hard to pay insurance. It's hard to pay vendors when you don't have that banking. And there are still some entities that deal and have to deal with that, all of that with just cash. Well, look, you may not want to word it this way, but I can certainly see how you guys are going to clean up because um, <laughs> having, having some solutions in place that make this easier uh, must be an absolute godsend for the industry. Whether, And I'm sure you're probably hearing the same thing. I mean, how many, how many times a month do you hear somebody go, finally, this is exactly what we need? Well, and we sometimes get those uh, rush phone calls. And yes. uh, I received one in, um, uh, last year from an entity in California, uh, cannabis dispensary. They walked in, the owner walked in and received a letter and a cashier's check from their bank saying, sorry, we can't bank you anymore. And Phil, it was a $3.7 million cashier's check. Whoa. And when you don't have a bank you account, have a bank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that cashier's check is not worth the paper it's written on. No. And that then then the question is, well, when you don't have that, now how are you going to meet payroll? How yeah. are you going to pay the vendors? All of that. And that leaves these entities scrambling to fix that issue as opposed to necessarily growing their their business. And that makes it that makes it challenging when there isn't that traditional bank uh, those traditional bank services available. The thing is with traditional banks, they would they will eventually sort of catch on to this and start to follow suit. But I love the fact that you're stealing a march on that because people don't forget. Industries tend to have pretty good memories when it comes to who helped them and who didn't during that, that growth stage. And by being somebody that's there not only to provide these services but to offer this advice and do a lot of this research on their behalf – you know they're they're going to remember. I mean, we were having the conversation, weren't we, in the in the virtual green room about the fact that in both of our countries to do do with the the handling of COVID, you know, our governments are making rules, but people are kind of just saying, "Well, we've had enough of your rules. Like yeah. we we, yeah. we 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 don't trust you anymore." And and I I certainly see something very similar and have done for a number of years with more traditional banks, which is why. Fintech has been such an incredible, incredibly immer immersive market because people want something else and they're tired of being treated that way by their bank. So if, if yes, you just choose that guy, for example, that you just said that the guy who owned the dispensary, you know, he's never going to go back to a traditional bank ever again. It's, it's tough. It, it really is. At the same time, one of the, the, the aspects that I love about the cannabis banking end of it is the cannabis entities are so appreciative to obtain that banking. And they have to do a lot of heavy lifting to maintain the compliance. There's a lot of reporting they have to give the financial institution. And for the most part, our experience has been 
these cannabis entities, they want to be legitimate. They don't want to do anything uh, that puts them offside or puts the financial institution offside with the regulators. So they're willing to provide the reports. They're willing to provide the information. They're willing to do all of the background checks and everything that's needed for them to not only obtain good banking, but maintain it as well, because they have to provide the monthly reporting necessarily to uh, track all of the transactions. And that is heavy lifting, uh, not only for the uh, cannabis-related business, but the financial institution as well. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Look, I wanted to ask you, because we're getting close to the, the end of the show now. Can you believe it? We've, 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 we've gone already. I'm, I mean, we could have made this several uh, shows. In fact, maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah. we should do several shows. We could literally just choose a topic and go for an hour on each topic. But, um, you know, I wanted to say from, from, from somebody who's, who's done some work with this industry and uh, has done a lot of research into this industry, you know, you and Michael, uh, Michael Patterson, who obviously yeah. you introduced me to, uh, are clearly at the, the forefront of what you're doing here. So given that a lot of our audience will be uh, investors, they'll be business owners, they'll be entrepreneurs of, of, of varying sizes, how can people get involved in this? Like they can see how exciting this is going to be and that it's this emerging market, but, but what steps should they be taking at this stage? Is it tailoring their business to deal with the cannabis industry? Is it investing in the right kind of organizations to, to be a part of it on that level? What, what would your advice be to them? Well, and, and it's called the green rush, right? In reflection of the gold rush. The gold rush, and yeah. If we, yeah, and if we look back at the good old Klondike and the gold rush, there weren't necessarily many people that had success getting the gold. Mm. But the picks and shovels and Levi on the jeans, you know, that's where Levi Strauss came out of. They had great success in supporting it. That's that's really what our firm does. We're not a direct uh, cannabis uh, business. Uh, we don't touch the plant or anything like that. We help the banks. So we're very ancillary and uh, two steps removed from anything to do with with plant touching. Uh, but that's definitely, there's definitely a whole support aspect of business. And so whether you are a business owner, uh, whether you want to invest in the, the excitement of the industry, investing has been tough over the past few years, uh, but there's opportunities uh, as there is in any sector on an investment basis. But whether you are an existing business or you want to do the investment, it all comes back down to homework. And doing that necessary work on educating yourself, looking at the jurisdictions that you want to work within or invest in, understanding what those regulations are, who the players are, and the successful ones. Uh, and as I say, the success leaves little footprints. Follow those footprints. But to be successful in following those footprints, education, homework is key. Mm. No, I love that. I love that. Listen, just before we wrap up, and uh, I'll give you an opportunity to, to let our, our, our audience know where to find you, uh, I did want to ask you about what we feel the the cannabis and hemp industries can learn from the black market, because obviously there is a, a rather established black market. Um, they, you know, I was actually listening to the podcast you did with with Brenton Weber and. Um, one of the fascinating things that came up in, in that podcast was that actually they may actually do the black market might actually be better at their customer experience and mapping out their customer journey than the um, than the current legalized market. Not always the case, um, but I'm, I'm curious to see what lessons you feel can be learned from that because typically when it comes to legislation and regulations. There's a temptation to throw the baby out with the bathwater, isn't there? It's kind of a, we're, we're, we're getting rid of that altogether and we're legalizing it. But that seems foolish in some respect when there's a lot of years worth of, of data and, and experience there to learn from. Yeah, there. I was just going to say it is the experience. And there are many individuals who uh, no different than that gentleman who I said been in the business 43 years. If you're in the business 43 years, you have tangled with law enforcement as you should have. You know, there's, uh, there's no, there's no, and I'm not saying I agree with what he did, but he was out to help people and he has great stories. But at the end of the day, he was a drug dealer. 
And there's, there's uh, uh, consequences certainly to that. But there are lessons to be learned from the, from the black market. But I think one of the key things right now that needs to be understood is that there still are a considerable uh, levels of black market, even in the legal states. Yeah, it's been said, and uh, I think it was New Analytics data that came up with the fact that about 80% of all sales in 2019 last year in California were black market. 70%, yeah, 70%. In Massachusetts, Canada, which went legal in uh, 2018 in October, they still see about a 70% illicit market. So why uh, why is that, Ralph? Is it is it is it accessibility? Is it is it comfort? Is it what is it? Tradition to some degree, but <laughs> yeah. I would I would look at very much the the barriers of entry on a legitimate basis. It is not cheap to build a uh, cultivation facility. Uh, licensing uh, to obtain uh, is expensive, and to monitor and to maintain uh, the the facility and the licensing is very expensive as well. Now, again, I'm not saying that's the reason why to have an illicit market, but certainly that uh, those barriers to entry to become a legitimate uh, producer. Uh, is is part of it. But uh, at the end of the day, there probably always will be some form of a, a black market. And uh, that just has to be, you know, recognized, whether you're an operator, a, a legitimate operator, whether you're a financial institution, uh, it's important to stay away from that illicit money, uh, whether an operator fully licensed, legitimate, or particularly not allowing those dollars to get into the financial institution. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I, I, I might sound a little bit preachy here, but it, I think it does, it upsets me to some degree that it, in certain states and in certain contexts, somebody would be, you know, using that guy as an example, somebody who's out there cultivating cannabis and, and doing so to, to help people. Yeah. Um, it would be classified as a drug dealer yet in the same state you can very easily get a license to open a bar and sell liquor that's far more dangerous to people um, yeah it, that's, a real shame. That, that's the moral dilemma moral obligations you know that uh boy we could debate that all day we long, could, we? i shouldn't have dropped that with minutes <laughs> to go on a podcast should i <laughs> let's just deal with this really complex moral issue yeah. in about 48 seconds well and and i don't think you can necessarily well you can deal with it you can discuss it to come to conclusion on it is is going to be difficult but i so. i uh um there's there's to your point there's lessons to be learned from the black market, from tradition, from history. At the same time, we just can't do anything that um, uh, expands that aspect uh, of the business. And legitimate licensed operators have to be careful of those. And financial institutions have to be very mindful of not getting that money into their, into their institution, regardless of the jurisdiction that they're in around the world. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I guess you can see how it you can see how it happens, can't you? You can see why there are barriers to entry, which makes it more complex, which is why there is still a black market. But at the same time, you can see from a, bi- a banking and financial perspective why there needs to be those regulations in place so that That's right. banks can feel confident that this is money that is, is, is coming from a legitimate source and that is allowed to go through their books. Because I can only – look, I don't, I don't understand the world of finance all that much, but I understand it well enough to know that if you, if you allow that kind of money into your institution, you're going to have some serious questions to answer serious questions uh regulatory questions reputational risk uh consent orders uh it's it that's not a good situation for a financial institution and a financial institution and the legitimate side of the business does not want to propagate that uh illicit market no and I can understand why. Ralph, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. It's, uh, I can't believe how quickly it's flown by. Uh, for our audience uh, to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way for them to reach you, my friend? They can do that through our website, which is www.iclv, as in victor.com. Or, uh, as you and I, Phil, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, we're both active on, on there. And happy to carry on the the conversation at any point. 
Fantastic. I will certainly stick your your social media links uh, in the, the in the write up and show notes below. Also, um, just before we finish, what's the for, for anybody listening to this who uh, hasn't done any research into this market and actually that their 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 hairs on the neck are standing up a little bit because we're talking about that that thing that does have a bit of a reputation and there is still some mud attached to it. What's the one? piece of advice or the one thing that you would say to somebody who's listening to this for the first time and going, oh, I'm not sure about this? What would you tell them? Well, this is where the homework, the education certainly uh, comes in. And it may not be necessarily starting with, uh, should I use the product or not? It is, I would look at some of the anecdotal evidence. It's the best evidence that we have uh, right now, some of the success stories that people have had. And uh, I think if people start with that, that's going to prompt, that's the, really the why, right? You know, that's really what the uh, what should be that little boost of energy that the why often gives us uh, to look at. And come at it with an open mind and and take a look at some of the successes that that people have had. That's beautiful. And there's a lot out there as well. I mean, I, I personally can think of a number of, even on YouTube, there's a number of videos with people using it for Parkinson's disease and uh, dementia and cancer. And as you've already mentioned, epilepsy. And the, there are, and in fact, somebody who had a stutter was using, had tremendous effects using it. Oh, great. Yeah. That's a great point. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's some really incredible work being done. And, and it's, it's, it's the human aspect, isn't it? It's much, much easier to, to relate to something on a human level than it is to read spreadsheets and say, oh, I wonder what we could do with this. And Yeah, yeah, and that's it. That's really the stories, the, the human aspect uh, of this and the help to it. That's a great place uh, to start to help dispel some of that history that uh, if you if and maybe that's the next part uh, to take a look at is look at the history. Look at how that stigma was was put uh, forth, particularly in in the U.S. And then how that translated out to CBD, but particularly hemp and even industrial hemp. And uh, the history history is an interesting lesson for us. Oh, the audience are about to go down a very exciting rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph Kaiser, thank you so much. I look forward to doing more work with you. I, I have no doubt that you and Michael will both be on the show again with us at some point. I think it'd be great for us to, to have a bit of a panel-style discussion and, and explore where this goes. But I can only thank you so much for your time. I'm sure the audience really took a lot away from it too. Phil, it's been my pleasure. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. I uh, hope the audience have enjoyed this, whether you're listening to us on Inspire Radio or indeed whether you're across the Billionaires in Boxes network. Uh, until next time. This is Billionaires in Boxes, empowering one billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time.